Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexandra Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Hello, Bernice, callers and chatters and guests. Well, Patricia will monitor the chat room and summarize your comments. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your blog talk radio. And a special welcome to the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, on August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment was passed allowing women to vote. Women were fighting for the right to vote for a long time. They held protests, created national groups, and dared to speak in public. And tonight's show will focus on a new book by author Angela P. Dotson entitled Remember the Ladies celebrating those who fought for freedom at the ballot box. Angela Dotson documents one of the longest, most hard-won struggles for civil rights in our country's history. Her approach to this history is inclusive, detailing the contributions of activists from various movements, women and men of different races, religions, and politics who help bring about the victory to secure the right to vote for women. She also documents women's political gains since that milestone. This book, complete with beautiful photographs and illustrations, will help facilitate the conversation about how far women have come, where they are headed politically. Well, Angela Dodson is the CEO of Editors On Call, LLC, and a contributing editor for diverse issues in higher education. She has served as senior editor for the New York Times and executive editor of Black Issues Book Review. So let me give a warm welcome to Angela P. Dodson, 
to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Angela. Thank you. Glad to be on. Well, I'm glad to have you on, Angela, and this is a very intriguing topic. So let's start kind of at your beginning. What motivated you to write your book? My book actually came about as sort of a challenge from my editor. I had helped uh, my husband, uh, Michael Days, complete his book on Obama's legacy, what he accomplished as president, for this same company, for Hachette, the publisher. And she asked mm-hmm. me when I got finished, um, what did I want to do or did I want to write a, a particular book that I had in mind. And I mentioned a couple of things. I sent her a proposal. And she said, no, not those, but what about these anniversaries we have coming up for the women's suffrage movement leading up to uh, 2020 would be the centennial, but in um, 1917 New York passed um Women's Suffrage Amendment for its own voters, and 1917 or 2017 would be a good time to start celebrating it, start publishing books about it, that kind of thing. So I took it as a challenge, and I looked into the subject, which I didn't really know a whole lot about. Um, and I found out the more I read, the less I had known previously to researching this. So I became intrigued, and I became intrigued by a number of things, and that's one, how um, the suffragists were mainly abolitionists. The the early uh, activists in the women's suffrage movement were just about all abolitionists, and many of them were participants in the Underground Railroad. We'll get back to that. And the role that black women played, the role that men played, there were a lot of surprises along the way. So trying to document those and tell the story in a different way than it might have been told before was very important. Well, it it is very important, and it's it was very exciting for me to read your book and to pick up some of the things that you just said. So please, you know, just give us an overview of your process for gathering information for this book since you did pick up information that they were early abolitionists and, and you picked up other uh, facts concerning the, the women's suffrage movement. First, I guess I did um, an Internet search just to see what was out there and to see what some of the main books were that might have been done and what some of the resources might be. And then I started going to the library and taking out books on some of the key figures and some overall histories of the movement and taking notes from those. And I found that basically when I started writing anything, I would never really have all the information I needed to go keep checking back with that particular book. So I started buying a lot of books. And I bought a lot of them cheaply on Amazon, used books. Um, and, you know, a lot of them had been published a while back, so they weren't very expensive. You know, it might be $2 here. But I spent a lot of money on, on books. And I did more research on the Internet. You know, I'd have to go deeper and find academic articles and things like that. I uh, used a couple of researchers to help me. One went to the Moreland Spingarn Library at... Uh, 
Howard to get some of the papers of um, black women who might have been involved, including Mary Church uh, Terrell. And um, I got some documents from the Rochester Library. In uh, University of Rochester Library had some original stuff. So, you know, there were different ways that I worked, and then I drew t- the timelines um, for the book from a lot of different organizations. They're, they're cited in the book that had timelines online, and I hired somebody to basically put them all on one document and try to sort out which ones were needed for my timeline, which ones were not necessary, which ones conflicted with each other, which ones might have just been wrong, and then adding to it some events that I thought should be in there that that weren't mentioned. Um, So ours is kind of an original timeline. We, We cite some sources, but nothing's ever been exactly like this. Right, right. And, you know, just listening to your process, and clearly you you were extensive in the various places that you went and buying books and, and using uh, going to the Spengard Library and what <laughs> have you, uh, it, it just seems as if you picked up basic information about women and the status of women and how women were viewed publicly. So tell right. us... In your in your your search, what did you uncover about women and their ability to communicate publicly to just to women and to mixed groups, and what impact did that have on the the women's movement? Right. One one of the reasons why it took so long for a women's movement to get started, in it, particularly in this country. And in Britain as, as well, which was was ahead of us most of the time, but um, I didn't deal with that as much in in my book. But the fact that women were discouraged, forbidden, whatever you want to say, from speaking out in public at all, um, many churches did not allow them to speak. You know, based on on the uh, biblical principle that that women should be silent in the churches or whatever, and many and they were discouraged from speaking to mixed groups. A woman might be able to address an organization of women or a body of women. There weren't that many organizations of women at the time. But the exception was one that a black free woman, Maria Miller Stewart, started speaking out in the early 1800s, 1831, 32. And she is the first American woman on record to have spoken to a mixed group of men and women, and she spoke mostly on um, abolition, children's uh, welfare, and the education of women, things like that. And she felt that she was badly received often enough that she discontinued that at some point. And, And then there were other women who began speaking out, mainly because they wanted to address the abolitionist cause. And they insisted on having the right to speak in public, and among them were Sarah and Angelina Grimke, who had been uh, born into a slaveholding plantation family in South Carolina. 
and both of them left, became Quakers, moved to Philadelphia, and became among the most outspoken abolitionist speakers and writers of their time. And this is shortly after uh, Stewart, in the also in the 1830s to, uh, to 40s, maybe. And they were roundly chastised by a group of ministers in a... Um, letter that they wrote or encyclical kind of thing condemning women who spoke in public, not necessarily them by name, but that was the intent. But it picked up speed. More and more women started on the abolitionist lecture circuit, and that gave kind of an agency to women. And then Quaker women were always allowed to speak in their churches. So they became some of the first leaders in the movement. And they were accustomed to being treated equally. They were educated with boys for the most part and educated better than most women at the time. So those were all factors. Women had to get a voice before they could ever get a movement. So that began to happen in the 1830s and 1840s. Oh, okay. So women had to, to have that voice and to and had to be able to have others listen to them to make yes. that movement a reality, as you just said. So when right. you first started talking, you said that you uncovered new a lot of new information. So tell us some of the poignant pieces of new information that perhaps we wouldn't know about, but you have found this information. I'm not sure that all of it is brand new. The newest thing I found that I know hasn't been published anywhere is I referenced a document that um, I got from the University of Rochester Library that I had um, actually I'd called them about something else to see whether I needed permission to use something that Susan B. Anthony had done or said. And they said, oh, by the way, we have the minutes of this meeting that was held in 1848, just a couple of weeks after the first women's convention at Seneca Falls. Would you be interested in seeing it and maybe using it somehow in your book? So they sent it to me, and it it, it is the, the minutes and it's signed by, or the, the names of the officers of the convention are mentioned in it. So we ended up using it, it as a graphic in the book. So I'm fairly sure that has never been seen before. Then there were two letters of um, Mary Church Terrell's that are in her um, archives there at Moreland Spingarn that we couldn't find really whether they had ever been published or where they might have been published. And... I don't believe they've been seen, at least if they have, if they haven't been seen in at least 100 years. So I was able to quote from those. So those are some specific things. But it, it's not so much that some that a lot of mine is, is new or, or shocking, but it's interposed and intersectional in a way that a lot of books have not been. One Mine is the first book that I know of that really took – from not just from the suffrage movement, but as you point, pointed out, um, goes back before the suffrage movement and tries to explain how women got here to this country, how what you know what they were doing, what rights they had, didn't have, up to suffrage, up to their first meetings for suffrage, and then it takes after gaining suffrage in 1920 
what happened to the women's vote and who did we elect to office and um, what voting trends are now. So there's th- that, and I, you know, and I profile women who were elected as governors and senators and um, some key firsts in Congress. And there are, you know, tables and tables of everyone who ever served, every woman who ever served in Congress, for instance, in the back. Um, you know, women who held other high offices, that that kind of thing. So that that's a different approach to the suffrage story. Is you know, so what came of it? What what good did it do for us to get get the vote? And then the other thing is, I tell the story in context of other movements. There are, you know, I mentioned the overlap with the abolitionist. Well, there also, you know, there was a movement within the abolitionist to boycott basically anything that was made with slave labor, and that was called the free produce movement. And if you think about it, it took tremendous sacrifice. They didn't use cotton. They didn't use sugar. They might not use molasses or rice. And they had special stores, I compare it to the Whole Foods, where they sold these goods to each other and they taught each other what to look for or what not to use or or whatever. Then there's, you know, the Underground Railroad. What does suffrage have to do with the Underground Railroad? Well, several of these major organizers of the Seneca Falls Convention and women who were organizers and leaders in other parts of the movement or later on were either actively living in an underground station that they periodically had guests passing through. And many of them lived near Canada, so they were the last stop on the Underground Railroad. And at least three of the women have written things about hosting or seeing somebody that was being ferried into Canada. Um, Susan B. Anthony writes about outfitting a family for their trip to Canada. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, one of the major leaders, talks about having been introduced to a young mulatto girl in her uncle's or cousin's attic um, as they were as she was waiting there overnight for them to sneak her into Canada wearing full Quaker clothing. Um, and another woman, Martha Wright, um, who lived in the Seneca Falls area. Um, also talks of um, having hidden someone in her kitchen overnight. And it's very rare, I understand, for uh, people to have revealed specifics or have written something specifically about their participation in the Underground Railroad in that way. So there's those those movements. But I also talk about the the beginning of the Republican Party, um, different things like like that 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 were going on at the same time. So. Yes, you do. And one mm-hmm. of the things I've I, I picked up, and this whole movement, I mean, women expressing themselves, this was not easy. And so yep. I'd like you to talk about some of the challenges uh, these women faced as they chose to step out of the norm and to be someone that would make a difference. What challenges did you see they encountered? Well, one of the key things was that women also couldn't really step into those positions until they had an education. And generally, women did not have an education. Even the the wealthiest families did not educate their girls, except for the Quakers that I mentioned. And 
so you know that was that barrier where they had to learn enough and know enough and be able to present their ideas they had to have ideas so they had to have read some books so part you know part of the challenge was starting schools for girls and the academy started popping up around the country particularly in the north and colleges like Oberlin opened their doors to women Oberlin was the first i believe and that's about 1832 or so, and they had previously been the first to admit uh, blacks. So there was the education challenge. And then also, you know, their own families, their husbands or whatever, would be mortified that their women would be out speaking in public and speaking up for rights or whatever. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who was one of the major organizers of Seneca Falls, had um, helped draw up the resolutions, and when her husband saw that she had included the woman suffrage plank that that women should actually get the vote, he swore that he would not attend. He would not. He would leave town, and he did. He did. Unlike some of the other organizers, their husbands were right there at the meeting. Their husbands helped run the meeting um, in some cases, but and they signed the resolutions, but her husband went off on a speaking engagement and simply would not be seen with her even making that request. But interestingly, uh, Frederick Douglass spoke up on her behalf at that meeting. So, you know, those those were some of the, the challenges, just that, at, you know, we have to realize in many ways they were bucking thousands of years of tradition. And, you know, women were supposed to be at home and, and maintain the domestic side of life, the, the 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 woman's sphere, as they kept calling it, and while men did things outside. They did the political. They went. And the other thing is women were simply not thought of as capable, rational, intelligent people. The, I liken them to the basically they were the furniture. And men, you know, hardly thought about them having a brain whatsoever. And, you know, it was convenient for them that women only existed to meet their needs. So, you know, it took like 70 years for this movement to budge from not from first mentioning, oh, by the way, we might like to have the vote, to when they got the vote. And there was, you know, all kinds of opposition. The industry opposed them. Other women opposed them. There was a strong anti-movement against everything they were doing. And, you know, some of those forces marshaled a lot of money and you know, fed the lobby against suffrage. So, right. And you're saying seventy years. Well, what mm-hmm. was going on though to drive that movement that they didn't stop? Something. There were some women there that were some key drivers to keep it going. And what did you pick up? Uh, uh, made that happen. Well, what they you know once they got going. There, there, there were a couple of key leaders who come in. I, I mentioned Elizabeth Cady Stanton was one of the original organizers. She stayed active for a long time. So did Martha Wright, Lucretia Mott, who was a famous, very famous Quaker preacher out of uh, Philadelphia, stayed in the movement almost the entire time. Elizabeth Cady Stanton kind of fades out in the stages right after Seneca Falls up until after the Civil War because she was busy raising her family. But she comes back in and, you know, is one of the, the strongest leaders. Everybody didn't always agree with her, but she was one of the, one of the people who kept this alive. And by then she had um, joined up with Susan B. Anthony, who became one of the longest-serving leaders of the entire movement. 
And, you know, they were bound and determined. This was this was all they did for the most part. And you got to remember, mm-hmm. they didn't work per se. Um, Susan B. Anthony had worked as a teacher, had been a principal, some other things. But they made this their life. And then there was a long period of time between 1848 in Seneca Falls to the Civil War where women came together, uh, women and men, I should say, men participated in these meetings. They held at least annual national conventions and quite a few state conventions and regional conventions to coalesce as a movement. I liken it to the consciousness-raising period of the modern feminist movement in the 70s and even to the civil rights movement. First they had to to get to know each other and they had to know what they were asking for. They had to know which rights they wanted to prioritize since women had no rights. Um, They couldn't own property. They couldn't have custody of their children. They couldn't easily get a divorce and if they did, they might lose their children. Um, So you know, and they and they had very little education, and they couldn't speak out in the churches, and for the, for the most part, so there was a lot of um, coalition building with the men, with the women, getting to know what women were strong, who did what, well, all that kind of thing. What you know, what they could do about certain issues, what they couldn't do, um, what their strategies might, might be. And, and mostly it was just talk. Even up to the end of that, some people were saying, well, we're just having too many meetings and we're ha- it's just too much talk and we haven't done anything. And then the Civil War came along and they stopped meeting at all. There was no movement to speak of. Um, and then they started having meetings almost immediately after the war. In fact, the war had just barely died down when they had some of their first meetings. But then... As you speak of after the Civil War, well, certainly prior to the Civil War, we had women's suffrage, the suffrage movement, and the anti-slavery movement. But after the Civil War, there's no longer an anti-slavery movement. But what's happening to the people that are now newly freed people? Right. Well, the and what involvement did those same women have to help? The, the the newly freed slaves. Well, there there are a couple of things. One, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony during the war helped to get a movement started for on behalf of the Thirteenth Amendment to make sure that they that the enslaved people remained emancipated once the war was over. And they started an organization, the the Women's Loyal League, and. Um, they got about a half a million signatures on petitions to, to petitions to Congress to introduce this amendment and pass it. Then after the war, when they start having meetings, the abolitionists want to continue their work. Some of the, the one of the major leaders fell away, but the, mainly they want to keep meeting until they can solidify the rights of the formerly enslaved. And they're working on the 14th and 15th Amendment, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony pick up on the fact that they're not including women in citizens and giving and you know giving the right to vote to male citizens and no, with no mention of women, so they meet for a while with these people to um, ostensibly to support both the vote for women's suffrage and for the black men in the South mainly. Um, then they split off. 
and because they there's a a breakup where Elizabeth Cady Stanton is accused of some racist rhetoric by a white man for that matter in a meeting and they kind of storm off and two or three days later start a separate organization that will work just for women's suffrage. Well, out of that, another woman, Lucy Stone, starts another organization that will work for all of it. And one one of the black women, um, Frances E.W. Harper, who had been in these in these meetings, spoke out in favor of the 14th and 15th Amendment as, and said that you know she was basically willing to take a, a you know back seat while men got the vote, the, the formerly enslaved men got the vote because they really needed it. Um, mm-hmm. And Douglas made that argument as well um, during this period of time. So, and so much was happening though because while you had people out there really pushing for the vote for formerly freed slaves, you also mm-hmm. had those that were willing to do anything and everything to prevent them from voting. So yeah. we. We're, we're dealing with some some very serious dynamics going on uh, with uh, different factions of the the community. Well, we're going to take a really quick break, come back, and then continue to talk about how this book can be used to help others understand what the women's suffrage movement was all about. So just a quick break. Okay. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to author Angela P. Dodson. She has written the book, Remember the Ladies, Celebrating Those who fought for freedom at the ballot box. So, Angela, how can this book be used to enhance our knowledge of the women's suffrage movement? Well, I think there are 
a number of ways, and I'd like to remind people that the title comes from something that Abigail Adams wrote to her husband when he was on his way to the Second Continental Congress to write the uh, Declaration of Independence and declare war on Britain and that sort of thing. Um, And she thought that they would, you know, at that point maybe write some laws that addressed women's concerns. They actually didn't. They just basically sent out the declaration and started running the war from, from that Congress. And women's rights were left to the states to write constitutions until and somewhat later the US constitution was written but it did not really address women's rights either so we have to keep reminding people of this but one of the things i want my book to do is possibly to be a conversation starter where we have and i've been meeting with you know people in dialogue and small panels and small groups and library rooms and um i'll be doing book clubs I have a talk at a restaurant uh, on September 19th, Tuesday, um, at South Restaurant in Philadelphia. That will be a discussion group. And um, I have, I'm at the Trenton, New Jersey Free Public Library on Saturday the 16th to do this kind of thing. But, you know, once you get in a room with, with people, and I, and I did a, a C-SPAN interview that you can, can also access on C-SPAN 2 um, over the Internet, once you get in a room with people and you hear what they have to say and, you, and you're able to really talk through some of these issues, it gets them out on the table and it and it also you know brings up things that I may not have addressed in the book, and that you know that people tell me. But I think it would also be use, useful in the classroom. Um, I'm going to Ohio U uh, in October, and I hope that that's just the, the first first of several that I'll, that I'll probably do on the camp, college campus, but to talk to students, and I, I've talked to high school students. I think that the book is easily enough read by high school students, college students, and maybe even middle school to some extent. But I think that people could also begin working on lesson plans around it where students didn't necessarily have to read the whole book or um, know the know the book per se. It's, you know, short, really concrete chapters and sidebars and little profiles on people that you can get your mind around, you know, in a lesson that's less than an hour probably. So, you know, I hope those kind of things happen and and book club discussion guides or, or whatever, but we can all draw something from it. And you don't have to read it all at the same time because because of the way it's written and because of the the sidebars and stuff, you know, you know, you might want to just read all the straight narrative first and then go back and read some of these profiles or just, you know, read a few chapters at a time, whatever. So, you know, it's it's easily broken down in in that way. You might just want to use the charts in the back. Um so there's all kinds of ways you can access this, but you know, the key here is is discussion because we, you know, we need to figure out why we didn't elect a woman in 2016 and and whether we're going to do one in 2020 or 2024 and how it's going to happen and who it might be because, you know, this is a very long time not to have a woman president. And, I, you know, in some ways I think it's far more indicting of our country that we've never had a woman than the fact that it took so long to get a man in there. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's very uh, important. which is a that would be a very interesting dialogue for for us to engage in. Just even if we looked at the dynamics of the the last election, 
Uh, exactly. I think we would be talking quite for quite a while when we uh, realize in the final analysis that the women put the other candidate in the White House. And right. That's a whole. <laughs> that's a that's a long conversation, but right. one that certainly I think requires some talk, some discussion mm-hmm. about. Exactly. So, Angela. And mm-hmm. we're, we're getting close. Believe it or not, we have about nine minutes to go. But mm-hmm. I'd like you to read some of the quotes out of your book that you you feel are, are compelling enough that we need to kind of take that away tonight and think about. Okay, I'm going to read, read a couple. You, do, you tell me when I've done too many. But this first okay. one comes from uh, Carrie Chapman Cat and Nettie Rogers Schuler, who wrote uh, a book called Women's Suffrage and Politics. And uh, Carrie Chapman Catt was the major leader of the uh, Women's Suffrage Association at the time that uh, suffrage was won. To the unimaginative man on the street corner, watching one of these suffrage parades, the long lines of marching women may have seemed to come out of nowhere, to have no starting place, no connection with his grandmother and his great-grandmother. To the same man... The insistent tapping of those suffrage canvassers, the commotion of the suffrage mass meetings, the repetition of those suffrage stunts, the incessant news of suffrage in the daily press may have seemed unrelated acts, irrelevant to social history. Okay, that's one. Let's see. Um, This one comes from a speech that um, Hillary Clinton did way back in 1998. We must tell and retell, learn and relearn these women's stories, and we must make it our personal mission in our everyday lives to pass these stories on to our daughters and sons, because we cannot, we must not ever forget that the rights and opportunities that we enjoy as women today were not just bestowed upon us by some benevolent ruler. They were fought for, agonized over, marched for, jailed for, and even died for by brave and persistent women and men who came before us. And if we are to finish the work begun here, we must, above all else, take seriously the power of the vote and use it to make our voices heard. What the champions of suffrage understood was that the vote is not just a symbol of our equality, but that it can be, if used, a guarantee of results. And Hillary Clinton said that? Yes, in 1998, I think I said. And 1998. At Seneca Falls. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, my next example comes from Frederick Douglass. And he made this address at Seneca Falls, as I said, in uh, support of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's uh, resolution for the vote. And he says, in this denial of the right to participate in government, not merely the degradation of woman and the perpetuation of a great injustice happens, but the maiming and repudiation of one half of the moral and intellectual power of the government of the world, he said. Shall I go on? Go on. Okay. William Lloyd Garrison. Five more minutes. (laughs) Okay. William Lloyd Garrison, who was one of the leading abolitionists and was always active in the women's suffrage movement, beginning about 1850 when they had the first national women's convention. He says, I doubt whether a more important movement ever launched 
touching the destiny of the race than this in regard to the equality of the sexes. Another one would be from uh, Sojourner Truth, who gives this at a meeting um, in 1853 while she was being hissed at and heckled. We'll have our rights. See if we don't. And you can't stop us from them. See if you can. You may hiss as much as you like, but it is coming. All right. Let's see. Love it. I think that one's not that well-known or associated with her. her No, no, it isn't. It isn't. It isn't. What's the next one I have? Um, And I guess this is from Susan B. Anthony. Is that what I have, Mark? Um, Whereas by the act of emancipation and the Civil Rights Bill, the Negro and woman now hold the same civil and political status alike, needing only the ballot, and whereas the same arguments apply equally to both classes, proving all partial legislation fatal to Republican institutions, therefore resolve that the time has come for an organization that shall demand universal suffrage and that hereafter we shall be known as the American Equal Rights Association. That association did not last uh, more than a year or two, if that. Um, And finally, I had one... I thought I had one from Mary Church Terrell, but maybe I didn't mark that one. I have another one from Kat that kind of sums up the story. Not only was the battle for woman suffrage fought longer in the United States, it was fought harder. It engaged the lifelong energies of a longer list of women, called into action a larger organization in proportion to population, and involved a greater cost in money, personal sacrifice, and ingenuity than the suffrage campaign of any other land. Carrie Chapman Cat. America. Okay. Well so those are you know, those are some of the voices yeah. in here. Right. And th- and those are the voices that we need to continue to hear and we need mm-hmm. to then move beyond what we hear into action. So do exactly. you have any parting words before we close out tonight? Um, One, I'd like to remind people of the importance of voting. Um, You mentioned briefly, but, you know, 53% of the white women who voted voted against Hillary Clinton. And 96% of the black women who voted voted for her. Um, So that tells you that there's a major racial gap, and we need to figure out what that's about. But, you know, it's also interesting that black women would easily vote for her in such high numbers. Um, and that one of the things I learned from this book is how important it is to build coalitions of people, black people, white people, men, women, that kind of thing. Um, I'm going to be in a discussion with a woman who's written about men who were active in the later part of the movement at uh, the New York Society Library on um, September 28th. And I also want to remind people that I'm at the South Restaurant in Philadelphia on uh, Tuesday, September 19th at 5.30. You can find it on the Internet and RSVP to Andrea at southrestaurant.net. Uh, I'm also at the Trenton Free Public Library on Saturday, September 16th from 2 to 4, and you can reach me on my website at www.angelapdodson.com or on Twitter at Angela P. Dodson, and I'm on Facebook. But you know, mainly I want people to get the book, read it, discuss it, and think about what um, 
politically they can do or educationally that's right whatever your role is that's journalistically in in my case um and help pe- young people particularly learn more about the women's suffrage movement right and and we're talking about building coalitions that's one thing that we need to talk about and talk about right. it and talk about it so angela i want to thank you so very much for sharing with us tonight your book, Remember the Ladies, Celebrating Those Who Fought for Freedom at the Ballot Box. And for everyone, remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the Research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Good night, everyone. Good night, Angela. Good night. Thank you.